1: This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables.
2: Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio I want to welcome members of the U.S. military who are serving in remote locations and are joining us over the Internet today and also new listeners joining us in San Francisco, Miami, Chicago, Atlanta, Boston, Denver, New York City, and from coast to coast, including new friends in Hawaii and Alaska. Thank you for your emails, your cards, letters, and your kind words of encouragement, and most of all, for allowing us to be part of your Newsweek. In just a moment, we're going to take a break from politics and business to talk about a growing problem in our country, and that is the subject of opioid addiction. According to the National Institute of Health, we have a crisis on our hands. The American Society of Addiction Medicine claims that drug overdoses are now the leading cause of accidental death in America. Approximately 2 million individuals have become addicted to opioid pain relievers prescribed by their doctors. And the number of overdoses from these prescriptions has quadrupled since 1999. In just a moment, the president and CEO of Brayburn Pharmaceuticals, Bashad Sheldon, will be joining us to help us understand what's behind this runaway addiction and what is needed to stop the spread. But before Ms. Sheldon joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about her background. Bashad Sheldon earned her degree in neuroscience from the University of Rochester and has more than 27 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry. Prior to becoming the current CEO and president of Brayburn Pharmaceuticals, Sheldon spent 10 years at Otsuka America Pharmaceuticals as their vice president of patient and branding strategy and also as vice president of global marketing. Before accepting the post with Otsuka, Sheldon was the Senior Director of Global Marketing at Bristol-Myers Squibb and was responsible for managing new drug successes at smith Smith klein Beecham. She has been a director at Syracore since 2014 and is presently the founding member of the Female Opioid Addiction Research and Clinical Experts Organization, uh, an organization called FORCE. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, Ms. Bashad Sheldon. Thank you for joining us today, Ms. Sheldon. Thank you so much for having me. If it's all right with you, I, w- I want to throw out a few more statistics for our listeners today. I recently read that every day, at least 50 people die from prescription drug painkillers in the U.S. and that over 260 million prescriptions for painkillers are written each year, almost enough for every adult to have a bottle of pills. So let me ask you this, what's driving this surge in pain medication?
3: Well, a few years back, um, pain was added um, as a fifth vital statistic to be measured by um, all kind of quality organizations and that was um, driven by the fact that you know a lot of people were um, reporting that their pain was not controlled adequately when they went to the hospital and they had serious situations. So things kind of, um, as, as, you know, tends to happen, uh, the pendulum swung from not treating pain adequately to this um, overuse of opioids for, you know, people will report going to the dentist and getting their wisdom teeth taken out and coming home with uh, a, a 30 count bottle of of hydrocodone, or um, having uh, some other small procedure done, and ending up with uh, prescription opioids, and because there is a genetic predisposition, um, exposure and the environmental factors can uh, lead to. A significant number of patients becoming um, addicted. Um, addiction in general, and opioid addiction, is a disease. It is a brain disorder, as has been defined by the National Institutes of Drug Abuse and in the NIH. And um, there is just growing evidence that um, there is a connection to your genetic makeup, just like there is for high cholesterol or diabetes or many other chronic diseases.
2: Now, some studies indicate the problem with prescription painkiller addiction is higher in certain areas, such as the south and the northeast. Is that true? Uh,
3: There does seem to be a line um, down the Appalachian Mountains. So it does start in in, um, in the uh, northeast, but it just goes down uh, across the mountain line. And uh, I don't know that there's a really good explanation as to why that is.
2: How about specific age groups or a prevalence amongst men versus women?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm sad to report that women are catching up. This used to be a more prevalent condition in men versus women, but the latest reports are showing that uh, it is becoming more prevalent among women um, as well. Um, And, uh, you know, sort of the the classic um, profile is a middle-aged white man at this point.
2: And and why is that? Is there an explanation for why middle-aged white men are more prevalent in terms of addiction to opioid prescription drugs?
3: I don't think there's any good data, um, or, and other than that, it would be speculation. Mm-hmm. And, and just
2: to put the problem in the U.S. into perspective, what does the prescription drug addiction and overdose rate look like globally? Is that also trending upward?
3: Certainly, things are trending upward much more uh, with heroin and other illicit opioids. But as you mentioned earlier, we consume um, a considerable portion of the world's opioids, 80%. And um, obviously, that results in um, significantly higher exposure to opioids. And then people who are predisposed to this uh, disease are more likely to um, come down with it. But it is a growing problem globally. It's just that we are um, ahead which is of course a bad thing in this case.
2: If it's genetically based is there any evidence that certain uh, races or certain genetic backgrounds would be less predisposed to addiction?
3: I think that's under study right now Mm -hmm. and it's not um, it's certainly possible that the data will eventually bear that out. Right now we're kind of in the uh, earlier stages of the research, and um, some, you know, genetic markers have been identified. Uh, I don't think we're far enough yet to say um, what races or age groups, et cetera, are predisposed. Certainly, young minds are also very well, very much predisposed to any substance use um, because the bl- the brain is not fully developed, and so it can essentially become hijacked much more easily by substances that. Um, are addictive.
2: Now, it's interesting that you say that this form of addiction to opioids is a disease. It's a disease of the brain. But it's not the way that the public traditionally mm-hmm. thinks about a disease. We have trouble with calling addictions a disease. So help us understand that.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. We do seem as a society and a, as general public to have trouble with that. Um, but in fact um uh, addiction is not a moral failing uh it is not a choice um This has now been established by you know brain imaging studies and um by experts in um, both in addiction medicine and in, in people who are doing re- very early research um and very clearly stated by um NIDA. And, and other government experts um, and stamps. I think um, there was actually um, a meeting back in March um, called the um, Rx Summit and Heron Abuse Summit and uh, President Obama uh, was on a panel and called it the disease of addiction. I think it's it's time for people to realize that that people don't choose to become addicted to a substance that then drives them to have to either sell or steal um, just to survive. Um, And that after a while, um, most people who are using aren't even doing it to get high. They're just doing it to try and get normal. They're just trying to avoid the withdrawal symptoms. They're trying to avoid cravings and, and feeling horrible. Uh, And that is like any other disease.
2: Mm -hmm. Now we have to take our first break, but stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Bashad Sheldon. You're listening to the Costa Report. The holiday season is just around the corner and I want to share one of my favorite tips for being able to avoid that last minute dash to buy something that screams, I didn't put much thought into this. Now imagine a different scenario this year. Imagine the surprise on your loved one's face when they open the first page of the Watchman's Rattle and see a custom dedication in their name by the author. The best part is it's so easy. Just go to RebeccaCosta.com, do it right now, and click on the book cover and presto. In less than three minutes, you can request the inscription you want. So do it now. Go to RebeccaCosta.com and this year, give an affordable, thoughtful gift that says this is for you and only you. That's RebeccaCosta.com.
5: Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years. And what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, It may change your life. One of the more significant aspects of prescription drug toxicity involves the depletion of nutritional elements that fuel the detoxification system. Like all other processes in the body, detoxification requires nutrients. The B vitamins, vitamin C, magnesium, copper, and zinc are particularly important for detoxification to proceed. And the more detox chemistry is required, the more the system is going to be burning through nutritional raw materials. In other words, in the presence of excessive medication, which the body must process as toxic, the detox machinery can become like a metaphorical sinkhole, diverting and draining key nutrients, keeping them from participating in the many other biochemical reactions that are responsible for maintaining the health and integrity of the human body. Vitamins, minerals, amino acids, fatty acids are not only key detox players, but they're also important molecules involved in providing cells with energy, protection, and as mechanical raw materials for building structural components of cells and tissues. The more drugs we take and the more they accumulate in the body, the more essential nutrients will be diverted to detoxification and away from vital biochemical reactions that are important for health and longevity. If these nutrients are not replaced via diet and supplementation, they can become depleted, and not only will purification and elimination of poisons be compromised, but so will the thousands of other biochemical reactions that likewise are dependent on the presence of these critically important biochemicals. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutrients. Nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos too at kscohealth.com.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is the president and CEO of Brayburn Pharmaceuticals. And we've been talking about opio- opioid prescriptions, uh, addictions, uh, overdoses, which are rising at an alarming rate. And before we went to break, you were explaining that addictions such as prescription painkiller addictions uh, are a disease, which we now have physiological evidence that uh, the brain compels and commands a person to continue to service the body with drugs. And when they don't, it administers a lot of negative effects, such as withdrawal symptoms, pain, uh, cravings, um, those kinds of things. So uh, it's a a downward spiral. Um, Let's talk about why these opioid drugs are so addictive. Uh, Tell us in layman's terms how they work and how they are different from other kinds of addictions, like alcohol, for example.
3: The brain has um, a system of sort of checks and balances to, from an evolutionary standpoint, keep you well. And so there is a receptor called the mu receptor, um, that uh, once activated, will serve to make a person feel better. So, um, you know, if you hit your toe and you you, you take some medicine, um, it leads to the internal systems of the body allowing the brain to modulate the pain effects and get you to feel better. Um, The opioid um, products uh, actually bind very tightly to this receptor and they fully activate them to the point where they're releasing a good amount of um, dopamine, which is Basically, the the human the internal feel good um, uh, and feel good um, you know um, device for the body is the release of dopamine, and um, when the brain gets used to this, um, it just wants more and more, which is called tolerance. And uh, when tolerance builds. After a while, it's not really uh, it releasing enough dopamine to make you feel so much better. It it just notices that there's less when you don't have the um, when you don't have the um, effects of the of the op- exogenous opiates that you're taking. But internally, if somebody who runs a lot gets this endorphin high, it's because the body's internal endorphins go up to the mu receptor and bind to it.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, what about these reports that addicts of prescription painkillers often turn to heroin because they can get the same effect for much cheaper and they don't need a prescription?
3: We've heard quite a bit that there's an increase in the number of um, heroin users um, because patients Uh, once they've become addicted to um, opioids, find it more and more difficult to get the prescription opioids. And it is, in fact, cheaper and often easier to get heroin on the street um, than it is to try and doctor shop or try and get it from um, someplace else, including on the street, of course, uh, diverted opioids. Um, Unfortunately, what's really scary is um, that the heroin out there is now becoming tainted with fentanyl, which is the most potent opioid, and so you have seen an even greater increase in the number of deaths from um, opioid-related overdoses to the point where every day, 78 people will die from an uh, opioid-related overdose, uh, whether it's uh, prescriptions or heroin.
2: Now, there's a new statistic that's out that four out of five heroin addicts start out on an opioid-based prescription.
3: Yes, unfortunately, um, that has um, certainly uh, been uh, a growing concern. People start out innocently with a sports injury or uh, a small procedure that leads them to getting a prescription, and um, then they continue um, before they know it. They've um, um, become addicted, and therefore, um, after they can't get it, through the the normal channels, then they turn to the street, either for acquiring uh, diverted uh, prescription pills or to get heroin.
2: Now, earlier, you mentioned that 80% of the world's opioids are consumed by the U.S. Did you mean uh, 80% of the prescribed opioid medications?
3: Yes, 80% of the prescribed. Prescribed.
2: Yeah, I just yeah. wanted to clarify that. I, I had a little email here and they said, I think she meant prescribed. And I thought, yeah, well, I got that, but you never can tell. This is radio. So, <laughs> so all we have to parse our words kind of carefully. Now, uh, now that we we have a, a much better understanding of how prevalent and dangerous and easy addiction to prescription painkillers are. Let's talk about some new ways to stop this trend. For example, uh, several companies like Mitchell International are using predictive analytics uh, scoring algorithms to try to predict a patient's risk of opioid drug dependency before the first prescription is even written. Uh, what, What do you make of that?
3: I think it would be fantastic if we can have uh, reliable predictive uh, methods um, to to determine a priori whether somebody is going to be at risk, at higher risk or not, because the fact is that there are many, many patients with pain who need opioids. And you can't cut everyone off because you know that there's going to be 10 or 15 percent who will become addicted. And at the same time, you have to protect the people who are at risk.
2: But there are alternatives to opioids that might be less prone to addiction. Is that right?
3: Oh, of course. The um, WHO um, pyramid of pain management actually says that you should start with, uh, of course, you start with aspirin and Tylenol, and then you move up to nonsteroidals, then you can go to more powerful non you can rotate non you can change doses, uh, you can mix, you know, non and aspirin. and uh, So there are certainly different modalities. There are, there, uh, you know, uh, even things um, that involve um, psychosocial support, you know, stress management and resiliency kinds of training. Uh, there's physiotherapy. There are lidocaine patches. There are many, many different ways that you can try to manage pain. But there are instances, there are circumstances when those things are no longer adequate. And so patients who actually have a need for those um, should, should not suffer because um, of the risk that does exist.
2: So should we assume that when an opioid is prescribed to a patient, that the doctor and the patient have worked their way up that pyramid?
3: Uh, that that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, every patient should should first make sure that they're, you know, that the first thing they get is not um, an opioid. And every doctor should, of course, start where um, uh, the the guidelines say they should start and be very careful. And And there is a difference between treatment of acute conditions for um, uh, for pain uh, with an opioid, and and then using them chronically, and that's been the basis of the the latest uh, CDC guideline that uh, talks about the fact that after a few months, you really at that point you're probably um, op- opioid dependent, and and if you have a patient in that situation, then you should look to treating the opioid dependence, which may or may not then become an addiction um, with with medications that are approved for it, um, such as buprenorphine.
2: But given the number of prescriptions being written, which are overwhelming, we can assume that not all doctors are working their patients systematically up that painkiller pyramid that you mentioned. We have to take another commercial break, but stay tuned. We'll be back after these important messages. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, recent winners of the best sparkling wine in the U.S. in the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championship. Congratulations, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So what is it about your brute cuvee that beat all the other competitors around the world? We really
5: focus on creating an expression of the Santa Lucia Highlands and doing it the right way. And when you control the process from the beginning to the end and you have talent like Michelle and top tier grapes, they really shine through. This was a worldwide competition. It was definitely a humbling experience. We were in a room with producers that have been making wine for over 100, 200 years and was a huge honor to have Tom Stevenson give us the best you best sparkling wine award we fared really well overall we had three wines win best of class which was great
4: visit the caraccioli tasting room on Dolores street in carmel by the sea or find us online at caracciolicellars.com or reach us by phone 831 this is mrs future
6: from the Dr. Future Show. We have had Etheric Networks for 10 years, and it has always been really a stellar service. There's always a real person there if you have any need to call them. They fix things as quickly as possible. Our service has hardly ever been down, and the service is just great. We live kind of in the middle of nowhere, and there are no other mainstream bandwidth providers where we are, and Etheric is a great service. We're really lucky we have it. Thank you, Etheric Networks.
1: KSCO, Residential Special. Residential service up to 10 megabits per second, symmetric, that's up and down for $85 a month and $199 installation with guaranteed minimum speeds and uptime, unlike our competitors. Etheric Networks, call 650-399-4200. That's 650-399-4200. Etheric.net, that's Etheric.net.
6: What a surprise. The backers behind Measure Z aren't telling the truth about what Z really does to Monterey County. They claim it stops fracking in the county, but the truth is there is not any fracking in Monterey County. Bottom line, Measure Z would result in a shutdown of traditional oil and gas production in the county. Production that has been done safely for nearly 70 years under the most stringent environmental regulations in the world. If Measure Z passes, the county could be forced to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in costs and lose over $8 million a year in property tax revenue, which could lead to devastating cutbacks for our police and fire protection in Monterey County. That's why the Monterey County Farm Bureau, the Monterey County Deputy Sheriff's Association, the San Ardo Fire Protection Association, and the Monterey County Hospitality Association have all joined together to urge a strong no vote on Measure Z. Paid for by no one, Measure Z. Stop the oil and gas shutdown with major funding from Chevron Corporation and
7: Era Energy LLC. Too bad about radio. Oh, what do you mean? Well, since television, you know. Hardly anybody listens to radio anymore.
5: Oh, I wouldn't worry about that if I were you. There's a radio in use for every man, woman, and teenager in America.
7: Really? Gee, I'd hate to think of them all turning them on
5: at once. They do. Every morning. (laughs)
8: With you every night Through the long commuter fight And in the morning With your toast and mama lady Who listens to radio No matter if it's summer, winter, spring or fall Who listens to radio
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us today, our guest is the president and CEO of Braeburn Pharmaceuticals, Ms. Bashad Sheldon. Uh, tell us a little bit about your latest venture, Braebard Pharmaceuticals, and the approach you've taken to helping combat prescription opioid addiction.
3: Sure. Um, Braeburn Pharmaceuticals is founded on... Um, the um, expectation that, um, like all chronic diseases, long-acting implantables and injectables uh, are going to be um, very helpful. Um, so most of us are not very good at taking our medicines every day, and um, and you know, I do it with my Lipitor, I can't manage to take it three days in a row. Um, But that doesn't have the same kind of consequences that someone who has opioid addiction not taking their medicine will have, um, in that they could relapse. And of course, this is such an unforgiving disease that one mistake, one relapse can lead to overdose and death. So what we have um, as our... um, First of a suite of innovative products is a six month buprenorphine implant uh, designed to be inserted by the clinician um, under the skin in the upper arm, and then it provides treatment, medical treatment, for six months. And doing that. So, time, is this a, system time system system exactly, mm-hmm. a time release
2: system that's implanted under the skin?
3: Exactly, a time release system that's implanted under the skin. Delivering
2: and, medicine for six months. Right. So if I if I need a painkiller, there's no danger that I'm going to overdose, uh, or you know, or uh, be compelled to uh, share my my bounty with others. Uh, this is a time release painkiller system that is implanted into the body.
3: So buprenorphine and probufine specifically are actually approved for the treatment of opioid addiction, Mm -hmm. although buprenorphine also does have pain relief uh, properties as a molecule and has been approved in other formulations um, for the treatment of pain. Mm -hmm. Um, there's for example a patch and there's some sublingual tablets but the benefit of something that is inserted on the arm is that it can't be shared with somebody else it can't be diverted can't be sold on the street can't be stolen by somebody else and can't be accidentally uh, ingested by children Mm
4: -hmm.
3: now is this dosing technology available today it is um probufine was approved on may 26th and we've um been shipping. So um, it's actually available on the market. Uh, it, because this uh, uh, involves um, a small in-office procedure, we've been training physicians, but there's actually a locator map. And so um, people can go on and, and find um, a doctor in their local area.
2: And currently, it's being used for people who are uh, getting off of
3: addiction. Is that right? It's, yeah, it's so probuphine is indicated for people who've been doing well on buprenorphine, which mm-hmm. is a medicine for um, opioid addiction and um, now are kind of in the later stages of the recovery and they're stable and allows them to have a medicine that they don't have to take every single day, which um, does become a burden. And given the stigma that we have um, in this country, even the act of going to the pharmacy and picking up your buprenorphine prescription can be something that's daunting for people because, of course, the pharmacist will give you a funny look and know why you're there, et cetera.
2: Right. Now, what kind of clinical results have you gotten from using this implant system?
3: The study, the pivotal study that led to the uh, approval of probufine was actually just published in JAMA on July 19th, uh, just the Journal of American Medical Association, and it showed that over a six-month period, patients who were on, uh, this, this was a study that compared uh, the six-month implant with taking the medicine on a daily basis sublingually. Uh, and it it showed that um, 85% of the patients in the probufine arm uh, were opioid-free throughout the six-month period. So those
2: who uh, accepted the implant remained opioid-free for that six-month period in which the implant was active?
3: The the vast majority did. Yeah, 85%. That's a huge number.
2: Right, so you must I have been it, very excited about that, that trial.
3: We, we were very excited that um, what's been known and for which there's been quite a bit of medicine, which is uh, quite a bit of evidence, sorry, that um, buprenorphine is a medicine that works and that should be used in the treatment on a regular basis. Um, this was data that um, really um, helped increase that knowledge and um, added to the the clinical community's knowledge about buprenorphine. Mm -hmm.
2: But as I understand it, uh, there are other uses for this technology in terms of uh, assisting in opioid addiction as well. Is that right?
3: We're also looking at... um, different kinds of delivery mechanisms so that we have a weekly and a monthly injectable buprenorphine, and that will help ultimately to treat people from, you know, the very early stages where they need to come to the doctor more often, and they're seen on a weekly basis, they would get the subcutaneous injections, and then they could move and graduate to a monthly uh, injection, and then ultimately to the six-month implant when they are further down the recovery path.
2: Now, what's been the biggest obstacle to getting physicians to uh, agree to use uh, implants?
3: Right now, we're in the process of not only training physicians, but working with insurance companies to make sure that there's coverage um as with all uh, and this is you know part of part of the problem we're trying to solve in general in treatment of opioid addiction, no matter how we got here, we now have you know two and a half million people who um, are dependent on opioids, and we need to treat them, and the systems to pay for treatment are are not perfect. There's prior authorization required for pretty much every kind of um, of treatment modality for um, for for opioid addiction. And um, so it's going to take some time for. While most insurance uh, companies have been very receptive to the idea of a a buprenorphine six-month implant that can't be diverted and abused itself, um, there's still it's a process and it takes time. And so that's that's part of the issue.
2: Uh, Right now, is the implant covered by most insurance policies, or is that something you're having to work out with the insurance companies?
3: Right now, most of the insurance companies are working on their coverage policies, but the, in the meanwhile, both commercial and Medicare and Medicaid um, payers will um, look at each case individually, and the more cases they get, the more they will be um, instigated to um, put out their coverage policies more quickly. So far, we've had um, no denials uh, in these kind of one-on-one medical necessity kinds of calls to insurance companies. Uh, and we've even had some um, some uh, providers that have said that they will cover without any kind of prior authorization, which is great. Uh, there's There's a number of um, national insurance companies that are very progressive and understand that a disease needs to be treated with medicine. And they understand the cost to society of not treating something like opioid addiction.
2: And, you know, I I have to say that I think that your strategy is very commendable. You're dealing with the two and a half million people that are You know, on pain, opioid based painkillers. But over time, you would think that you'll migrate toward implants that uh, release the painkillers themselves, since the abuse seems to happen as soon as a prescription is made. I mean, we're talking about four out of five heroin addicts starting with a prescription opioid medication. Uh, So, you know, it it seems like if we could have some kind of implanted release system for the painkiller itself, that maybe we can head off the problem before it becomes a problem.
3: So it, this definitely would would make a lot of sense, and with buprenorphine, um, it is actually possible, and we are investigating um, all of our different buprenorphine formulations for the treatment of pain as well. Yeah, um, so we're we're looking forward to completing those trials and bringing something to market that can't be abused or. Um, or even overdosed on because of the ceiling effect that buprenorphine has.
2: Terrific. We have to take our last break. When we come back, we'll find out what the healthcare industry and government must do to address the growing problem of addiction. You're listening to the Costa Report.
7: Big data is changing the way organizations work. From data-driven marketing and ad targeting to the connected car, big data is fueling product innovation and new revenue opportunities. It's creating a culture in which business and IT leaders join forces to realize value from all data. They infuse analytics everywhere and make speed a differentiator, gaining competitive advantage from faster, more informed decisions. Leading organizations are creating new business models, developing new roles, and defining new big data architectures, including an infrastructure that can manage and process exploding volumes of structured and unstructured data, in motion as well as at rest, while protecting data privacy and security. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today
1: in the opening of all quiet on the western front Eric Maria Remark wrote, This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will simply try to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped its shells, were destroyed by the war. Today, Project Healing Waters offers men and women that have escaped the shells of war the opportunity to heal by teaching our returning veterans to fly fish in some of the most beautiful, tranquil rivers in our country. These natural surroundings have the ability to restore the human spirit, and with your help, Project Healing Waters is able to reach out to thousands of our men and women in the military every year. For information on how you can help, go to projecthealingwaters.org. Please give and give generously to those who have put their lives on the line for you. That's projecthealingwaters.org. Help those who have escaped the shells of war and need your help to come all the way back. It's always open house at the Mike Young Real Estate Hour, and you are always invited to walk right in and join the discussion. Hello, I am Mike Young, and I love talking real estate with all the experts and with you. So get a jump on the Real Estate Weekend every Friday, 7 p.m. on the Mike Young Real Estate Hour, right here on Listen and Be Heard Radio KSCO. The Mike Young Real Estate Hour is brought to you by Thunderbird Real Estate, Real People Selling Real Estate, by Rick Williams at American Pacific Mortgage, and by Steve Manville at Farmers Insurance. Friday at 7. See you then.
8: Care from the Heart is a dedicated and professional home health care agency that's been serving families in the Tri-County Monterey Bay area for over 18 years. We help our clients and their families handle health challenges with determination, love, and humor. When you work with Care from the Heart, we provide assistance with the utmost respect. Your team will consist of nurses, case managers, and home care specialists, who will listen and you will design a flexible program to fit your specific needs, either short-term or long-term. You might need help with medication, personal hygiene, meal preparation, transportation, companionship, household chores, or pet care. We can even help you with the dreaded insurance paperwork. If the time has come when you must step into the role of caregiver for a family member, naturally you'll have questions and concerns. Care from the Heart offers classes that provide specific information and skills you'll need to become the positive and supportive influence your family member deserves. And we protect against caregiver burnout by offering periodic respite care for you. Whatever your individual situation, now or in the future, help is available. For a complimentary consultation, call us at 831-476-8316. We can come to you, or you are welcome to visit our office in Santa Cruz near Dominican Hospital. Our website is carefromtheheart.net.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Miss Bashad Sheldon. Let's talk about government oversight for a moment. What do you say to people who are worried that there's collusion going on between big pharma, government, insurance companies, and that that's at the root of these uh, addictions?
3: I don't know about collusion, but there is a confluence of unfortunate um, processes and systems that seems to have led to things um, getting bad and, and to being very slow in improving
2: Well, tell us a little bit about that. What's that confluence look like? Because you've been in the pharmaceutical industry for your entire career, and it's been an amazing career. So help us as a layman try to understand what does that confluence look like?
3: So to start with, um, you know, you've had uh, pharma companies who have benefited from sales of opioids, uh, which probably started out as them thinking that these are valuable assets to the medical community, but obviously then um, continued to to see what was going on and and, and didn't really change um, change track the way one would have uh, wanted them to. And um, on, then once bec- once it became clear that there were a number of people who are who are suffering from the disease of addiction and need help, the response was, for the most part, to uh, marginalize these people, to incarcerate them. When when finally people started paying for treatment, unfortunately, it was in the way of uh, putting people in residential rehab centers who, of all the different modalities of treatment, have the least amount of evidence behind sustained um, ability to keep people relapse-free. So these, you know, often cost anywhere from ten to $30,000 a month to be in a residential rehab place. And then people come out, and a month later, two months later, three months later, they relapse and they die. Uh, and, and they're particularly vulnerable because they've lost tolerance. Their brain doesn't remember what it can handle, and the same five bags of heroin that could barely get them high will kill them. And you know, it's taken a really long time for these kinds of places to recognize that they actually need to incorporate medicine into their practices. Um, then you have the you know uh, criminalization um, of a disease. So you know, people who are um, you know trying to get um, enough money together to go pay, um, which is a whole other part of the issue. So Medicaid and, and even some commercial payments to doctors have been traditionally so low that many clinicians don't take any insurance so you're left with a cash system um, and patients having to get together whatever they can to go pay for one visit at a time and if you can't afford you know if you, if you, if you can't afford to pay you're going to have to figure out some unfortunately some way to do it you have to sell something uh, you know either your your body or your possessions or your mother's possessions and so you end up in the kinds of behaviors that um, people associate with the disease uh, so that's you know, kind of what I'm talking about about the confluence of unfortunate events that um, have come from not not paying attention in the first place then when you realize there was a problem not putting forward the it, the resources uh, even the, with the financial medical resources um, to, to try and deal with it versus uh, just putting someone in jail and thinking that you're, you're dealing with the problem that way. Um, and then we know that, for example, when, when people come out of jail, in, there was a study done in Baltimore that showed within two weeks, 5% five of those 100 people, within two weeks, they were dead. And this is not the way to deal with the problem. Uh, And the ones um, who live end up in this circle of of relapse, contracting other diseases like hepatitis, which obviously still have um, an even greater burden on society. So that's why we need to get back to um, dealing with the fact that this is a disease and, and, and get over the stigma and put the resources, financial, medical, Uh, to treat people in um, an outpatient setting with medication, which is probably the most cost-effective, certainly the most evidence-based way to treat people rather than um, trying to do rehab and then on the other end, when people relapse, just giving them Narcan to bring them back, which is obviously important and great to do. But if you then release them back into um, the same life without any kind of medical treatment or follow-on treatment or protection, then you end up with a case like Prince, where he was revived, and then a week later, he relapsed and, and unfortunately died.
2: Yeah, I I think that when we look at the empirical evidence, we see that the uh, opportunity to be rehabilitated from an opioid-based addiction by going to rehab, the percentages are pathetically low without some kind of outpatient and some kind of medicine, actual medicine treatment. Um, uh, I, I have to ask you this question because I'm not sure I know the answer. What's in it for doctors? What's in it for doctors to be prescribing so many opioid-based painkillers?
3: I think most doctors uh, start out trying to do the best they can for their patients. I think this just cut it just got out of control. It became a habit, you know. In in the pharma world, you know, like the hardest thing to do is change doctors' habits once they become ingrained. Uh, just after a while, it becomes an automatic response. Okay, I have a tooth extraction. Let me write this. Ten so I have a you know broken limb let me write this it just becomes habit I don't think people have I don't think doctors have have tried to do anything wrong um, they were probably uh, you know worst case scenario not not paying as much attention as they as they could have been
2: yeah not not but aware I think that,
3: that, that the, the most important thing is you know if we're gonna point fingers that it should the biggest pointing is to the disease. Mm-hmm. it's a disease and it's there and now we have to deal with it we have to take care of people who have the disease they they deserve the same kind of innovation and treatment that people with any other chronic disease have that they deserve to get their lives back and you can see with medical treatment and then there are three medicines that are fda approved and you can see people get their lives back we hear about this they get their children back they um, get jobs. And, you know, so the most important thing is for them to be alive. The second thing is for them to be functional members of society, having their lives back. And the third thing is for them to be using less.
2: Absolutely. And, and that's well said. We do have the medical technology and the empirical evidence to be able to cure addicts and turn the trend uh, the other way in the other direction. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. But before we let you go, I want to thank you for taking time to bring this subject to our attention and, and also for taking a scientific approach to the growing danger of opioid addiction. Thank you, Ms. Sheldon. Thank you so much. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Bashad Sheldon, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you miss the full interview with Sheldon or any of our other guests, you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from Apple, iTunes, Podbean, our YouTube channel, and also our website at RebeccaCosta.com. And while you're at our website, be sure to check out our audio blog and the videos that we've got posted as well as the contact page where you can leave your comments about today's program or anything else that you've got on your mind. That's also where you can order your copy of my book, The Watchman's Rattle, a book that explains for the first time why it's become so difficult to separate facts from opinions and hearsay and how history demonstrates that when this occurs, collapse is not far behind, folks. When government leaders can no longer identify the facts, public policy soon becomes irrational because it becomes based on unproven beliefs. Get the Watchman's Rattle. Learn about what you can look for and, more importantly, why this repetitive cycle keeps occurring and what can be done to stop it. Go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's my myname.com. Only takes a couple of minutes. And if you're a regular listener of the Costa Report, you'll be happy to know that 100% of proceeds from book sales go toward keeping interviews like the one you heard today on the air. This is one way that we've been able to maintain our independent status and bring you in-depth guest interviews that you will hear nowhere else. So do your part. Go to RebeccaCosta.com, MyName.com. Order your autographed copy of a book that has been a bestseller in 21 countries. That's right, 21 countries top of the bestseller list that's the watchman's rattle unfortunately our producers were not able to confirm our guest for next week before our broadcast today so please check your local station or our website at rebeccacosta.com for who'll be on the hot seat exactly seven days from now right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics now stay tuned for another hour of straight talk radio you're listening to the costa report mm-hmm.